Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast. I'm Dave Sharp, Marketing Consultant for Architects at VanityProjects.com. Today, I'm joined by Matt Hines from Taylor & Hines Architects, a Tasmanian practice Matt and his partner Poppy Taylor founded in 2013. Taylor & Hines are known for uncovering the histories and stories of Tasmania in their work, and their approach to architecture and the way it's communicated is serious, critical, and rigorous. In this episode, we discussed Matt's thoughts on a wide variety of issues, including why Matt and Poppy have made the choice to remain a small practice and how it allows them to be more selective in the projects that they accept, why Matt believes architects shouldn't be afraid to use complex architectural language when necessary to communicate their ideas, how the studio has learned to price their work in a way that reflects the true value of what they do, the key criteria that the studio looks for in the right client, and the questions that Matt asks new clients to uncover the true narrative of the project. I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Matt Hines from Taylor & Hines Architects. It's really exciting to have you on to talk about Taylor and Hines. I'll be really interested, I guess, maybe just as always, starting off with a little bit of an overview of the practice and what you and Poppy have been doing over the last few years and what you're kind of working on at the moment as well. Um, okay, so we have we set out with an aspiration to be small and remain small, and we've done that so far. It's not a difficult thing in... Tasmania to be a small practice. Um, it's far harder to establish something of scale. But we started out in 2011 off the back of a request by a friend to design their house. It actually came the same day that I quit my job in another practice. So I quit in the morning and the afternoon we had a commission for a house, which um, was uh, obviously timely. But it was on the back of the recession, so it was it was a tricky time. I think most practices start in that period, and since then our focus has really been on small scale Tasmanian based um, projects with large stories to tell. So we engage with the kind of narrative potential of the work. Um, uh, so we're quite picky about our clients too. And, and so at the moment, um, the small practice, how small are we talking? Is it the two of you? And do you guys have some employees working for you as well? Well, small. We've got five okay. staff. So, yeah. But the awesome. three and uh, three architects with a with graduate position and, and a kind of admin. Yeah. And, and when you're talking about making that conscious choice to stay small, that's not something anybody's ever said on the podcast before. So that's, mm. um, that's a really interesting idea. When when did you decide stay small was uh, kind of the way to go? And I suppose what's the philosophy behind it for, for you and Poppy? Because we graduated from a school of architecture, not from a school of business management. And we knew that scale brings a lack of focus to the core act of the field, which is to have a design um, to, be to, to, to be an architect. And so we even find with a relatively, you know, employing someone else as a graduate or, or growing the practice even marginally that the focus becomes much more about necessarily about growing their capacity, um, which is important, but it also means that our attention is taken away from the work. And the only reason our clients come to us is because they're engaging with the, with the promise of our involvement. 
So that's why we've decided to be small. We're also, because we're um, partners in life as well, being in a more intimate setting helps us to balance. Um, it, 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 it results in a more relaxed work-life relationship. Yeah, a lot of practices I talk to when it comes time to go from partners or a sole practitioner to make that step up to employing and then growing, it seems to be something that's forced upon them rather than something that they seem to consciously decide to do or have a strategy for. It's like we've had a sudden sort of influx of new projects or inquiries or whatever. We've taken them on. We've put out a bunch of proposals. All the clients have signed on and, oh, who's going to do all this work? We better hire some people. Um and your process sounds a lot more kind of deliberate than that, right? And But how do you manage it and not end up in that sort of situation yourself? Well, the, the way that we look at it is that if we have the, the and we have had situation or need to increase our resourcing really drastically and very quickly, and we've actually done that in partnership with other practices that we regard. So we wow. grow by sharing resources, not not grow by then burdening our practice with an economic shift that it can't maintain. And that's unfair to our staff as well. Anyone that we employ, the expectation of we like to to have a kind of sense of um, we commit to a sense of engaging people in the practice. And so it's not, I say resourcing, it's, it's, that's, that, that word probably shouldn't be used, but it, it is um, important we to, to get the scale right, and in Tasmania, it's probably more nuanced than than, it, than the registers elsewhere because mm. the the work very quickly. While there is a lot around at the moment, it can very quickly suddenly not be there. Yeah, so it's quite volatile. Yeah, and why is that in Tasmania? What, where does that kind of volatility come from? Is it just the size of the market, or is there uh, something else? I think it's cultural as well. I think it's a right. market market driven and and it, it's it's got to do with where um, socially where the optimism sits for engaging the um, engaging the, the the architectural process. Um, we find it's very tricky here because you often, to be honest with you, there is a sense um, of in Tasmania it's a small pond. Um, we get the sense of pressure of the big fish coming in wanting to work in the Tasmanian context because it's appealing. Yeah. Um, and so that that does put a lot of pressure on the profession here because we kept being kind of um, boxed into an expectation of what our capacities are and then that builds into a culture. Um, the government's doing a lot more uh, recently in, in, in seeking to engage Tasmanian expertise, Tasmanian-based architectural yeah. expertise for larger-scale public work, which is good. Um, but private clients, those that have really interesting um, ways of engaging their, their projects tend to look outside the island, which I think is a great shame and unnecessary. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, the makeup of your inquiries, and just to go down that a little bit further, um, if we're talking about the private projects, uh, would that would those primarily be local people um, in Tasmania, or are you finding that there's been a shift yeah. uh, towards people from sort of the mainland no, as well? Interesting people are here, yeah, and more and more so, people have come back. So yeah. we're finding that we're getting often get approaches from outside of Tasmania. Uh, mm-hmm. With a view that people are coming back, 
So um, yeah, very interesting. But the thing is, Dave, there are so many fascinating problems or questions here that need to be answered and yeah. of a cultural dimension. And that is, I think, um, scaleless in a sense. It doesn't. We don't tend to necessarily go for large-scale projects because they yield high fees. We don't think like that. We go for mm. we go for large ideas. And um, so at the moment we've got this really fascinating kind of cross-section of projects all with fabulous clients, good people who understand and allow the processes to take place. I mean the other thing is that we aren't because we're, we're not in the business of being um, I say this I say this too much apparently, but we're not in the business of being quick and wrong. I, I just can't stand the attitude that that somehow architecture just happens as a kind of regurgitation on, onto a piece of paper. It takes time to make to conceive of a building that will that will that should outlive all of us. So that part that conditions as well the kinds of clients that that we attract. Um, they have to want yeah. something enduring do your clients um because i think i i always talk about this on the podcast actually this kind of idea of selecting clients and having criteria or knowing a good client when you see them or kind of you know what is your ideal client and how do you work out uh either during your process when they first contact you or at what stage in the process and how do you figure out are they the right client for us and you talked earlier about these narrative potential and large stories is that like one of the most important factors? And I guess what are some of the other factors that kind of come into play when we're talking about a good client for your studio? I think one of the things, it doesn't always happen, but we take, um, Poppy and I are quite attuned to the relationship that ha- that is at the absolute core of the process. Our clients, we share with them in a very deep way um, uh, a common agenda to make to make a really great building. So that um, that that requires, to a degree, I, I, I'm never sure about how to position this, but I uh, there is a professionalism and a language that comes with our engagement. If the client seems uncomfortable with that, it's like they're uncomfortable with their physician using specific body terms, it becomes it that becomes an issue for us. Not to say that we use language to 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 complicate or be obtuse. Sometimes language needs to be abstract to be precise. So it um, if a client's comfortable with that, that's a good indicator. What's not a good indicator is if you get the sense that they own, that they want ownership of the intelligence. Um, it, it, there's nothing worse than feeling, and we have had this feeling like every line is just slipping away because it's kind of the client expects some kind of intellectual property right over every mark you make. That that is a very tricky and burdensome process. Um, and we've, I think we've had, we have had a couple of instances where that has developed in in our engagement, and it's it, we just don't go there again. It's not even a case of us saying, well, we'll do that differently next time. We just don't bother. It's yeah. not It's not worth it. Gosh, yeah. Wait, so what's, a, what's sort of like a practical, I'm just a bit curious about that. What's a practical kind of example of a client that is sort of taking ownership of every line? What, what, what does that kind of translate to in terms of their behavior? 
uh, just as just a bit of an example. Uh, not listening. Right. Okay. <laughs> not listening yeah. and not not prepared to be not prepared to be um, not that this necessarily eventuates, but largely the processes of making build making architecture is 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 procured through um, through a um, really a it's really working with doubt. So if 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 that is an uncomfortable place, um, certainly if it's an uncomfortable place for an architect to work, you see it in their work. It has no life, um, and and it has no searching quality, and doesn't really ask any questions. And if a client is not comfortable working with doubt, um, obviously they need to be clear about some things, but uh, like what their needs are. But then when those needs are framed and how they're held. If there's a moment that, that an individual feels they are compelled to just work with what they know in that regard, then the promise of architectural um, um, endeavour is lost and that that becomes, we find that that suffocates the work. Is that something that a client just has to have sort of like in their DNA, um, that, no. that being comfortable in doubt or is that, is no. that something you teach? <laughs> no, 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 that is not. It's, 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 it's an openness. They, yeah. it's like a, it's a process of learning like every other thing in life. It just, right, okay. of any client who would come to an architect, if they knew what they wanted to do, then the architect is redundant. So it is a process of searching. It's by default. We enter into that process together and then um, engage with the possibility and, and wonder of, of, of the field. It, it, it has to happen that way. Is that a conversation that you might have with a potential client at the start of the process or is that something no. that you... No. Right, okay. Interesting. No. You have to see it first. And, and, if, you, yep. and if you push it out as a, as, a, as a focus, it becomes too... There's too much pressure there or expectation it just happens naturally. If they're yeah. good, if they're good people, and there's an identification of a value set, um, yeah. and the most wonderful moment, the best moment, is when the client says something and they haven't realised that they've said it, and it unlocks the um, potential of the work. Yeah. If if that happens, it, it's like the, intuitively they know um, where where things need to go, and once you've got that. It's the, it, it is really exciting. It's a feeling. That's really interesting. Um, in, in kind of watching a couple of your talks to sort of prepare for this, I was impressed by something Something really, really stood out to me, which was a presentation you gave um, at Open House Hobart about Boson's Cottage, uh, I think it was last year. And the first 20 minutes was actually your client getting up and giving a presentation on the history of the house, yeah, right? yeah, um, Doug Bridge. That's right, and yeah. I've never seen anything like that before. <laughs> yeah, where now that's you've. I think I've got to know a little bit more about, I guess, Doug and and that and that is a, is that kind of the perfect example of a client that is like seriously very engaged in in the story of a place. Absolutely, they were uh, Doug and Allison. Because they committed themselves to the cottage and its social history, they were just kind of feverish in their enthusiasm, and but also um, prepared at times when sometimes it's necessary to say that there's a limit to draw a line in the architecture of the project. Um, obviously, if a client feels enthusiastic about engaging 
with the process and, and it, there's a kind of freedom there. They think that these are the, the, the process of design is a, is a freedom, whereas actually it is a discipline. So that you, you have to kind of work with their, work with the enthusiasm but at the same time carefully handle that in, with, with the realities of the work. And um, Doug and Alison, still, we still are in touch with them regularly. Um, they were the most magic clients and they did this thing where they produced a document that was a, a detailed historical study of the cottage um, and, its, and its setting for um, since it was constructed in the late 1830s. So it, and, and prior to that, obviously, the history um, of the cultural landscape too. But that, that, that lent us real sense of depth to the possibility of the stories that could, the cottage could tell. And, um, uh, and it meant that when we started to talk about detail and when I said to Doug and Alison that there were moments when we had to consider the presence of convict life in the work, they knew what that meant. They didn't take exception to it. They let the detail resolve around that possibility. So they were remarkable. Yeah. I mean, what do you do to get clients like Doug and Allison walking in the door? <laughs> how, do you, how, do you, how do you get that to, how do you make that a regular or consistent thing as a practice, I wonder? Well, it's not. I think every, each client has their own kind of quality um, and their, their own wonderful way of being, which becomes, which works into the spirit of the, um, of, of what we're doing. So it, it you handle things differently depending. Yeah. But so long as there is that underlying enthusiasm there, you can work with that. It, it, mm. it, it's when a client is indifferent or when they are aggressive or when they are um, impossible to work with or when they're not willing to facilitate um, answers to quest- fundamental questions like what something needs to be or how much it needs to cost. Or if a client starts to play games, and cl- some clients can do that, we just won't, won't waste our time. And, yeah. and I don't think anyone in the profession should. Yep. There's, um, I really like, there's, there's a few sort of hints of a kind of this is how we do it, sort of take it or leave it <laughs> in, your, in your approach from, from the sounds of just hearing you talk about it a little bit that I think is really great and it, for me it it's so intrinsically linked to the sort of way that you've kept a cap on the supply of your practice that you're that you are in a position where there's probably a bit more demand to work with you than there is Taylor and Heinz to go around because you've kept it at an at a smaller scale kind of intentionally or at least that's kind of my initial interpretation is there something in that that idea of we can be kind of comfortable going we're, we're not necessarily going to continue to work with aggressive or indifferent clients or we're not going to, you know, kind of drop the ball because we have to, right? Yeah, it's not so much scale. It's more about integrity. Right. All practices can can engage with the the same reality. I think that there are the work, the work speaks to higher orders of, of possibility than, than just the transaction, the commercial transaction. It, it, we're working with ideas and that becomes, it's, it's critical that even though you're right, Dave, in this, to a certain degree, there is a bit of a take it or leave it scenario, but not take it or leave it in the sense that um, clients are excluded from 
that it what it does it creates a very clear outline of a way of making something amazing that mm. if there are limits if there are if there are clear limits to the possibilities of working together then suddenly that that concretizes a really clear optimism and it's and, and that is something that you see that integrity forming the kind of scaffold to the work so because we also work in very particularly environmentally and culturally sensitive contexts that good matters to us tasmania is a special place and it matters a great deal to us in the community we love and it becomes very important that we make buildings that um uh, that are worthy of that context it's it's just interesting to kind of hear you talk about it that way because I think there are some, I get the feeling from the outside that there's been times where you've, it's it's when you have those difficult choices, right, in your business or running your practice where the easier option might have just been to kind of go with the flow or cross that boundary or cross that line and it wouldn't have necessarily, that that small decision may not have been much in itself but it accumulates over time lots and lots of those little decisions but it sounds like you've got a very strong, uh, a, a, it's not a moral compass, but a compass in the way that you operate, which is these are sort of boundaries or lines that we 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 very, very much protect. Um, and I get that sense from a number of different people that I have on the podcast as well. But I'm always interested in it because there's, there's kind of, um, it seems to be very correlated with creating an environment where you can do really great work, mm. right? So... I'm just interested in kind of hearing a little bit more about it, really. Well, I don't think our clients pay us to compromise. That's and interesting. If, Even if, if they want you to. Yeah, at the time. they do not. They do not pay us to compromise. And if we were in a position where we felt like we were making compromises, I mean within the boundaries of what's realistic. Yeah. But if we felt like we were cutting the guts out of a project yeah. and couldn't articulate that to our client or didn't articulate that to them, if we didn't tell them, and then charge them for the pleasure. I think that is a very tricky um, situation. So I, we just if we're not sure about something, we will say it, that that we're engaged to do that. It's not um, and compromise. Not not a, it gets to a certain point in the work where we're dealing with the detail or or resolving some kind of aspiration. It, it, the client doesn't need to feel like every kind of design decision is is compromised by their budget or compromised by mm. their needs. It's not. It's not about that. It's not that kind of compromise. It's yeah. it's it's it doesn't. We work in. I think people again they assume it's an economic compromise. It's not that buildings can be built quite economically without being kind of um, and still achieve really extraordinary outcomes. We, we, we get that. <laughs> That's the context we operate in, so more than anywhere else probably. So, yeah, it's it's just that I feel like when we're engaged, we, we when we enter a room, a, a field of knowledge that is literally thousands of years old enters with us and we have a responsibility to honour that and to bring it to bear um, for our for the people who engage the promise of it. So if we're not talking the economic clearly, but is, is do you think time is 
the more important resource in terms of time to make the design decisions or is it not even related to time in terms of what you want to invest into getting the getting going through the process in the right way no look it's not uh, for us the decisions that come with a project with a good if it if the foundation in the project is set communication is open the aspirations clear mm. time we can work incredibly fast because there is almost an inevitability in what occurs in the decision-making. The project wants to be something and we just have to be attentive to that. Yeah. So it happens quite quickly and and um, sometimes we have to slow down because we can move too quickly for the client <laughs> to keep up. It, 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 that, it's particularly in public projects, that's what happens a lot dealing with bureaucracies. You you find that you've got to kind of pull back, um, but the expectation is that everything's moving it at um, kind of at a pace. But in order for the idea to settle, it it does require us to pause. So it's not it's not time in the sense that the decision. It, some other things do take time, like struggling with the possibility, struggling with an idea about how to resolve a particular detail. I have often. Poppy and I often um, struggle with details, which we know are the kind of fine fine edges of a work, which close out the narrative, and that becomes that. That's where we can pour a lot of time um, getting the detail right. Yeah, interesting. I, it's actually going back to something you talked about earlier. Um, you were talking a little bit about the language that you use as a practice as well. Um, that that you don't seem to shy away from using uh, sort of the lexicon of architecture, very specific language, language that may not necessarily be at all times understood by potential clients or the general public, mm. but using that language and not being afraid of that because, you know, the word the word archi-speak is kind of thrown around a little mm. bit and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's this kind of industry sort of conversation or debate. Um, there's also, you know, maybe it's just marketing consultants on one side and architects on the other. I'm not sure that there's necessarily that many architects um, arguing mm. against, you know, using that formal language, but I'm interested in how you use it because it's not, it's, Obviously, there's different contexts where you speak in different ways, sometimes to clients, sometimes giving a talk to the general public mm. on Instagram, for example, on social yeah. media. Yeah. But even on Instagram, you're still, you're still posting pretty, um, pretty complex language on there and, and that's fine. So, I'm interested in kind of your thoughts on that. You, and you actually brought it up earlier in terms of how we kind of um, organically filter our clients. <laughs> It sounds like there's a little bit of that in there, but but that might just be my reading of it. But I'm interested in your kind of thoughts on language and how you kind of use it as a practice. Well, we try to use it precisely. Yeah. So sometimes language, a term, an idea in architecture can unlock a way of thinking about what it is that we're doing, one word. And I remember... Um, Richard Flanagan being was he he wrote a piece. He'd been told by his publisher to perhaps loosen the kind of complexity of the language and prose um, of his writing. And his response was, "That presumes that my audience is not interested in the kind of intellectual rigor or." That they that they expect to be treated uh, uh, or, or expect the writing to dumb 
the reality of thing, the reality of the work down. And I've always remembered that. Um, and you don't see it's a kind of shorthand. It, it's not. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. Um, more than any other profession, I, I really find it interesting. We have some friends who are lawyers and they took us to task once because we have terms like enfilade or poche or there are or entablature. There are ways of talking about parts of the work, uh, parts of architecture and making buildings. And they, the, a friend of ours said, you have a responsibility to speak clearly. And I said, but that is clear. There's nothing clearer than than, than those terms. They They... Describe perfectly the spatially and in terms of lineage what it is that we're talking about, and it belongs to the profession. So I just I think language, but the other side of that coin, Dave, is I have mm. I have often more often seen scenarios, and particularly within universities, and I think it's a disgrace where students are exposed to the most convoluted, obtuse framework of language. Yeah. Almost as if it sets up a scenario where the student is being denied access to knowledge intentionally. Um, a number of times I've been exposed to that. I can't stand that kind of engagement, that vague, intentionally um, kind of obfuscating language that that that, that is not there, that's not generous and doesn't allow others in. I, I, I understand. I also I did have... A lecturer Rory Spence, who taught history and theory at um, at the University of Tasmania, um, and I remember him saying, "Plainness of speech, speak plainly." Um, but he still used that. Didn't mean he dropped the terminology um, of the canon. It, it, it just meant that you you're not there to kind of make it. It's not it's not for show. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. How, I guess. I guess what is so using the terminology is something that is is there. It's it's accessible to those who want to figure it out or or, or learn those words. Um, but there's a difference between that and something just being sort of um, obtuse for the sake of being obtuse, right? Yeah, it's just sloppy. Yeah, I mean, language it's just not precise. It just that's what it is, and and you can. Being able to talk clearly um, about an idea and use particular words. The other thing that we notice is that each individual project conjures its own set of uh, lang- its own language structure. So you you engage with clients over particular ideas. If 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 you were if you were to walk into the room at any point mid through midway through one of those conversations, you'd probably wonder what the hell's being spoken about. But it it at least there's an established rapport and a language that builds in the work. And so slowly you, you kind of can shorthand with the client or the builder about the logic of what needs to happen um, or, or what the intention is. So that's also, there are many orders of, of very specific language that, 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 that gets shaped through the work. Um, I think too, I, I, I mean, the number of times that we've been asked to speak at public forums and more often than not, I mean, there's a large cohort, um, large number of people in the audience who are architects, um, but they're also not. In some instances, we've had audiences with primarily non-architectural backgrounds. They all respond incredibly strongly to the 
to the ideas of the of of the work. We, it's not because they're complicated; it's because it's meaningful. So um, I think it. I just I resist the the thing the, the times when language gets used or or is weaponized or made into a kind of uh, made to cloak the, the 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 reality of the work. That's when it becomes a problem. When you get mediocre um, architecture being kind of pushed upon a community and language is used as if it kind of um, to to make the work seem like more than it actually is. That's that's another dimension of of of, dif- of, of difficulty. So yeah, I think for us, we just treat it as it comes. We work with within the within the kind of structures of a project's logic and the language that comes out of that. Uh, and, but don't, it doesn't. We don't feel it needs to. We need to be feel guilty about the fact that we have a profession with a sophisticated repertoire of terminology <laughs> that we can yeah, use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, touched on something interesting there. When you're giving in the in the times when you've given a presentation to that non-architect audience, and you and you find that there is that response and that that positive response, and they find the kind of contents of some of your talks very meaningful. Are there particular, I suppose, facets of what you talk about, or or sort of maybe aspects of your projects that have you have you picked up that the non-architects tend to find, tend to really certain things tend to resonate with them? I know we're probably just looking at very anecdotal sort of stuff here, but has there has there been anything that sort of stood out to you maybe as a surprise or? Um, you've you felt oh there was a really there's something here that just really resonated with the, this non-architect audience. I often get surprised by when I when I talk to a, a topic. Um, I have to understand it. So it's usually it's usually in, I mean, in, by understanding. I mean I have had to have worked through it to to f- feel this way. Um, but it is important. To us, when we speak about ideas in our work, that those and this is this goes back to the responsibility in the first instance about not 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 compromising or 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 being uh, unclear with the client about what is actually at stake in the project. Because when it comes time to look back at the work and see what it teaches you, or the possibility of what or what lessons have come out of it. Um, that those lessons, that those those things resound more clearly. Um, so I, I feel like when we when we talk to an audience about the work, we're really engaging with the fundamental humanity of it, and that is appealing, no matter the audience. Everyone everyone responds to human needs. Um, it, it, it it's just a fundamental part of being. So, provided the work. Is 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 backgrounded by that, um, and and then and then that is expressed clearly in the architecture, that the architecture then can hold us in a certain way to strengthen and and clarify that purpose. I think no matter what, um, anyone would respond strongly to to that. Um, Interesting. So the sort of universal human needs are sort of where you find. That's that's the thing that sort of hits home. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean that explains too even the broadest experience of things. That's why when, and it's beyond language. That's why when um, um, 
I mean, the, it's a slight cliche, but when you're not to Chitsunitsa and understood the platforms uh, and, the, and the revelation that they provided in the density of the forests, the rainforests, that, that is a spatial idea that holds for millennia outside of a culture and language because it is a fundamentally human experience. Um, and then equally, when we go to places and sites, uh, our experience with working with the Aboriginal community in the remote northeast in an area that we thought we understood um, because Poppy and I had spent a lot of our early childhood in that area, um, but then being told stories which allowed us to see that landscape as almost entirely human-made. Um, it becomes, suddenly it became this vast living interior, which, but it's, but it's pushed as a kind of wilderness um, an idea that it is an an environment, but it's actually fundamentally in in this um, ancient relationship with us. It's just th- those those things are not they don't belong to any they don't belong to the profession. They are universal, um, and then we have to work to allow others to access them. Mm, interesting. Um, interested in. Interested in talking a little bit about, I think, heritage as an area that is kind of, uh, and, and picking up some of the talks that you had given, um, you mentioned this kind of suspicion of architects um, that maybe exists out there a little bit when it comes to when it comes to an architect being involved in a building with histo- with a history or importance to a to a community. Um, uh, I would love to get your thoughts a little bit on that in terms of working working within heritage, I suppose, and the relationship that architects have with the public or the role that the public believe they have. In particular, I, I, I you showed a few examples in one of your talks of screenshots of Instagram comments. Mm. And um, do you find that heritage is one of those areas where uh, I suppose... Um, there's a bit of kind of backseat driving that can go on from time to time. Maybe putting it that way is not the right way to put it, but where where there's maybe a tiny bit of conflict sometimes between as an architect and 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 the public, or there's something going on there. I've seen this doesn't always happen, Dave, because there are some people that that work within the heritage sphere who are exceptional. They yeah. provide extraordinary clarity um, and intention. Um, and uh, guided by the highest principles when it comes to dealing with the fabric of places. There are, though, scenarios of the absolute opposite dimension where travesties uh, are perpetuated through cultures of um, uh, thinking about heritage, and it's particularly... Particularly in Tasmania, we have a problem with cultural heritage in that, um, again, while there are some amazing, there are amazing people here working in that space, there are some who establish a way of doing things that sets an agenda um, which actually does immense damage to, to places to with this kind of insidious um, 
uh, pursuit of a conservative agenda, which just destroys any possibility to wonder about the future. And more more often than not, and I've, we've been exposed to it as well, as careful as we have been in our work, we, we have had it criticised relatively strongly um, within the heritage sphere. We've also had it, <laughs> people within the heritage um, field say how much they love it. So yeah. we just don't know. Um, I just think that we don't, we just don't subscribe to orthodoxies. We just don't. I think our work, because we let the work speak and we engage with it on its own terms, um, certain th- certain qualities come out in a way that perhaps, you know, the Borough Charter might not necessarily comfortably accommodate. But the Borough Charter is not, uh, it's, it's, it, it is just a guideline. It's not, um, it, it isn't the kind of end of the product. What determines that, we feel, is actually architecture. It's far older and deals in a far more nuanced way with the human condition and and the capacity to remember. So we use that, and I, I feel like too that a lot of, a lot of the time the profession gets painted as destroying built culture rather than contributing to built mm. culture. And every act that we make now was in, in, in a similar generative act. 200 years ago or 400 years ago, it, 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 we're still making, it, it is a cultural thing. So it's, it, it needs, it needs space. Um, yeah, I have lots of, I have lots of issues with, uh, the ineptitude of, 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 uh, of that, of certain cultural heritage approaches. I just can't, I just can't abide them. Yeah, and it, it seems like it's an area that there's quite. Um, it can generate quite polarized responses, kind of working like where where people fall on kind of. Some people are deeply opposed to the work you do, and then some people are deeply for the work you do. And it's like, how do you have the, both those things at once? Right? Is it? Yeah, and the other <laughs> thing to remember is that they that the, the the cultural heritage sphere has the upper hand in destroying the potential of an idea, because our work is a very frail. Act. It, it is a drawing. It is a it's a mark on a piece of paper, and it, it, it that that can be easily critiqued and destroyed um, without without it becoming. I've often like with Boson's Cottage. There were things that that eventuated in that work. The qualities of light and the sound of the clock and the smell of the bread that had just been made by Alison flowers that had just bloomed from the garden um, and just the scent and the, and the footfall on the, um, on the pitsorn floor. Like it, it's all of those things come together, but we just drew the room. So how is it possible to, to, to show all of that? How is it possible to say all of that matters? And it, it, that, that is in the experience of the work. And isn't that the thing that we're trying to protect isn't that the thing that we're trying to realise, that there is an experience to hear for, for, for others? I just um, I find it so difficult. And, and unless we're supported in that process, um, well, it's very rare actually to have a heritage officer support an architectural agenda 
um, extremely rare. Yeah. And is that something that I get, for me, it kind of fits into the theme of having to communicate with uh, a, a wide range of different audiences that have their own agendas and uh, positions and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I guess as you, as you sort of develop a reputation as a practice and as you do more work, do you find that you're helping to change, maybe change minds a little bit as you continue to communicate, as you continue to put out the work you're doing? Do you think that you're making, are you finding that you're kind of having an influence or making progress um, in the in the direction you want it to go? I'd just be interested in, in I guess, getting a getting your take on that. Well, I don't know because no one tells you. They don't tell you. No. <laughs> How do you find out? They tell. <laughs> you they, te- they tell you. They tell you. know when they they tell you that they don't like the work, but they don't tell you when they when they do. It right. Just, okay. It's not. Um, yeah. It's not even a conversation. Yeah. Wow. So I, I'm sensing that you 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 face quite a bit of or have faced quite a bit of challenge. It sounds like a pretty fra- I guess a frustrating well, also situation the, or it can oh, be, right? It can. It's not just for us. It's for others too. I mean, we've seen incredibly civic, civically generous propositions for the city be taken down because of the Malian locations. Yeah. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so it, I just, and, and not only that, but the amount of public money that then gets expended to defend that position is a disgrace. So we've, we've, we just witness it all the time and I, I hope it's changing, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, bec- we, we don't have, we're not the ones that have to make the change. Cultural heritage is a real, places are being lost at an extraordinary rate. Um, that there is no methodology. Uh, there's no clear methodology in the engagement with fabric and the agenda, and that was part of the point we were making with Boson's Cottage, because while there was this critique of the work that we'd done with the cottage on one hand, it didn't have to, by the way, it didn't have to go through that process. It was exempt because it wasn't listed at the time. And suddenly yeah. because of our work, it should have been listed. So um, there's that process. And then on the other side, the feedback we were getting from the family who had lived in the cottage generationally um, their descendants coming back and talking, remembering the cottage. And now there's a kind of slow train of visits from people coming back to see the cottage. Um, uh, uh, So it's a really, it's done, it's done an amazing thing. Um, That's primarily because of the generosity of Doug and Alison in the way they've engaged with it, because they knew that, for instance, that little building represented a whole, idea about a place and it belonged to the place and they see themselves as custodians to that not owners of it interesting um it's it's something that i guess like you've had these moments recently with the practice where your projects have sort of not only been obviously successful as projects themselves um and your clients have i imagine been absolutely um over the moon with what they've ended up getting um but your work has been sort of seen around the country, around the world, um, fat, published hundreds of times online, turning up in sort of every unexpected place you could imagine, 
across social media, like just this reception of sort of um, some of the images, and I'll say some of the images of your work becoming just incredibly well-known and, and popularized. Did that, was that something that kind of came as a little bit of a surprise um, or um, I guess what did that kind of feel like to go through as a practice for the first time or has it, is it one of those things where it's kind of a gradual buildup over time um, or, or was there like a sudden kind of moment with, with maybe a project in particular where things just sort of really went to that kind of next level in terms of the way your work was going? I think the photographs that Adam Gibson took of Krakani Lumi yeah. resonated in a way that we didn't anticipate, but it wasn't because of, I don't necessarily see it being because of the the architecture. I mean, that's a part, but the architecture is there because of the extraordinary story that it um, backgrounds and Adam's images, his pursuit of an image to, to um, hold that power is extraordinary to watch. Um, he's an incredible photographer. But I, I think that really it goes back to the, the thing that we were talking about before, Dave, where these stories have power and reach, reach across any any media that people engage with them because there's something there that is incredibly wonderful to know. So that's and that's I think that but that project with the community, um, I, we're still there's still we're st- we learned a lot through it architecturally architecturally we learned a lot. Um, and it's still it's it's good to know that it has that kind of um, reach for for them. Mm. Um, I think also Bosons it because of its kind of domesticity and its its warmth, um, and it also has many layers, and uh, and and you can read that in the in the image. It's it's actually it has probably more to do with the way the image has been crafted by Adam, um, uh, that he's able to tap into all of the dimensions of what the work is actually like. So it's, I mean, we don't, we haven't really, I think we're interested in just ex, ex, showing showing people the things that we're interested in, not trying to pursue an audience and not trying to increase numbers of, of, of that audience. It's more just that it, that there, there's interesting things to to show, so we show yeah. them. Yeah, and it seems like the projects have really fit into a a bit of a zeitgeist in terms of I think everybody, particularly speaking here from Melbourne, um, lockdown over the last year would dream of nothing more than moving to Tasmania and living in one of your projects. <laughs> I think, mm-hmm. um, and sort of uh, it's there's a kind of uh, I don't know a sort of it's a it feels like a bit of a perfect kind of moment for your work um, where it, it sort of exactly fits what I think a lot of people are kind of, I, I, it's their idealistic version of living in a way. I don't know, maybe I'm kind of projecting onto it in, in a sense, but it's sort of this entire package um, that all seems to come across in the, in the photography. So um, Adam did a fantastic job, but um, 
do you do you sort of have you have you given any thought to in terms of your projects and and sort of what they represent for people when they're when they're looking at them um is there anything that you've kind of picked up on or is it again just that sort of that human condition there's something there or, or is it the interesting contents and the story it's the whole thing i guess i um uh, i think it's i think it's just the fact that the work is it's compelling because it anticipates us it's not um it hasn't have an agenda other than to accommodate the needs uh of of its uh, of, of the client of the of its occupiers but it's it is also has a responsibility to open up stories and i think that 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 is an interesting an unusually rare thing for an arch- for architecture to do, but we don't. I don't understand why it's rare because I just see it as fundamental. I mean, if you look at any practice, any any body of work, it's interesting because of the stories it's telling. It's um, and that it has a certain clarity and anticipates human engagement. It's the, the experience is key, um, and then that conditions the materiality and the detailing and the logic of the work. I, I, I don't understand um, why that is so unique because that to me seems to be a fundamental part of what we're trying to do as a profession but it's yeah. obviously rare which I think yeah. which I think is that's that's that then is bespeak that bespeaks the problem because it should be it should be the norm yeah, spot on. So, what are other architects doing wrong? <laughs> Even though they're listening, we'll be really, really nice and loving. Like we love all the other architects. Like, um, but but what's maybe um, I suppose what makes that sort of thing unique, or where does the where does the sort what's the pitfall or the or the problem that architects or the trap they get into? What, what in your in your mind? I mean, obviously, do you have any suspicions about what sort of um, what sort of easy or common mistakes are kind of made that can kind of lead to that, their projects not ending up that way. Le Corbusier had a great saying. He, um, I mean, he was a problem, problem on many fronts, but mm. he had a great, he's a great thing that he would say, um, I prefer drawing to talking because through a drawing it's possible to tell, it's not possible to lie. Mm. And that is a that is a what that what that says is that that is actually there's a dialogue that occurs. The act of drawing in and of itself is a process of the working through doubt that I mentioned before, and the drawing will tell us um, something about the logic of what we're seeking to make. So it's this this kind of perfectly um, revolving process. Um, I think what happens is that. There is a process of talking that occurs in work where it's talked into being rather than drawn, and it that 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 presents many issues in terms of how the work it loses rigor. Um, it, it it is quite clear that the work has just been developed through a kind of process. The architect's a lapdog to whatever agenda is being played. Um, the integrity of the work's lost. And it doesn't abide. It, it has no enduring quality and makes no contribution. Asks no questions. Is not vulnerable. Um, it, it, all of those things you see that it's when you see work that searches and 
and inquires and has a kind of delicate fragility, um, somehow it makes it so much more profound. Uh, um, I know that you had, for instance, Kirsten Thompson speak yep. in one of the um, one of the podcasts. So a, a practitioner like Kirsten, her work, uh, and for a long time she's been an influence for Poppy and I, but having individuals like that within the profession, we've, we find so much solace and um, immense support without them knowing it um, <laughs> just by the fact that they're operating with, with, the, with, the, with the kind of principles um, and producing the work that they are. It, it, and there are many architects like that who we admire um, hugely. Um, uh, I think also, I think that's the thing, you know, there's the kind of an underlying aggression about other practices, but we actually approach most other work with a sense of wonder at what its, what its, um, what its possibilities are, we, the work of other practices I'm talking about. And, and more often than not, we would recommend another practice as an alternative to us if we felt that they were a better they were better able to respond to the particular project. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that that's, they're, they're important things to do professionally. Yeah. So it's that kind of that sense of searching and inquiring in the work and that, and that search and inquiry in the, in the way that you practice that is kind of a thing that has to be sort of safeguarded, right, or protected or it has to be at the core, right? Well, what is there? What is there if it's not? If there's yeah. nothing, it's just yeah, yeah. No, but it's interesting to discuss because I think it's. Um, I, I'm always interested in this idea of how do you create an environment for that to happen, or to make mm. it easy for yourself to make those choices. Um, and so we touched on that a little bit earlier. I am interested a little bit in the business that surrounds the work, um, and. I suppose, no, we're probably not even really talking about marketing here. I mean, but I'm interested, I guess, you, you spoke um, at the Architect Conference a, a few years ago and, and sort of spoke about some of those business, kind of the challenging aspects of, of business and learning business management skills uh, and operating in the profession. Um, I guess, you know, what have what have you found over time to be some of the bigger hurdles in that, in that area um, in terms of growing and operating the practice? Uh, the expectations that are set by other practices about what fees are, not the client so much, but other practices mm. um, coming in and offering fees that are ridiculously low, uh, clearly yeah. buying the work, that... One of the principles of how we operate is that we will only charge what we think we're worth, no less and no more, and it and we and, and it is not up for negotiation. So, if if there is a task to be done, we're not we're not operating as a charity. Uh, equally, we don't seek to kind of set ourselves up to on on the back of one project make a year's worth of earnings. We do what we do to service the needs of the project. In the most economical means possible, but not to sacrifice, um, not 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 as a kind of process of constant sacrifice of our time or our thinking. 
that then builds value for the client because they know that they're getting something um, considerable for what they're paying. It doesn't mean that we charge um, ridiculously high fees, but we do we do maintain a very clear fee structure that that we do not move on. And more often than not, if you attract, you start to see other practices generate work off projects that just have no fee and they keep doing it and you just end up with crap. It's just crap. So, but it also sets up a culture that we've kind of sat on the edges of a little bit where the the value of what we actually do is so reduced, it's not even worth or possible um, to make an architectural idea real. It, it, and, and so, but there's this kind of turntable of process of the commercial practices get into where they just have to keep buying work to maintain their scale or um, to keep the practice operating. I just don't feel like that is sustainable or worthwhile. Yeah, it's interesting. So was that your approach when it came to fees? Did you have that approach pretty much from day one um, in terms of were you were you charging like uh, were you charging like very, very healthy fees that ref- reflected your value from the beginning or was there sort of a, first, a period of transition that you went through where you had to kind of build it up a little bit? We were, we were unsure at the beginning of what any of that meant because we'd both operated in practices where we'd not seen any of not seen any of the kind of back of yeah, house right. mm-hmm. operation of how things worked. The first lesson for us probably came with our first clients, who were also fr- dear friends, um, and they we were <laughs> nervous about the fee, thinking God, we're going to have to really you know do this as a favour. It's our first project; they really don't know what they're getting. Blah blah blah. Yep, and. Um, I remember them coming in and looking at the fee and saying, is that what you're worth? And we said, well, yes, to the project. And they said, no, what, what are you worth as architects? What is your value? And we told them and they said, well, that's what you need to be paid. So yeah. that kind of, and in Tasmania, that like uh, I can see, I can see some other, if, if other, I can see the faces of other practices here. They're <laughs> shaking their heads because it's just not um, the other thing that, yeah. So it's just worth it's worth being clear about that for starters because that allows you to make better work that and and that will build a certain client um, and an expectation around what is value. It's got nothing to do with cost. It's got nothing to do with money. It's value. It, it, it's the value of the work. How much do they value the process? If they don't value the process, don't in, don't engage in a project with them. Um, the the other side of that is, you know, we have only a relatively few scenarios in Tasmania where you would have large institutional clients, for instance, engaging the profession. Um, and they they have they are in a position of speaking um, about how they kind of engage optimistically with 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 the profession or how they set up a um, a, a very reasonable engagement not not based on fee for architects 
Um, but actually the way they operate is on the bottom line entirely, almost to the point that they would cut the guts out of um, out of uh, the possibilities of uh, uh, for, for the for the individual practices to make work to make good work for them. So there's that as well. There's a double sided. There are lots of clients out there who like to kind of uh, pretend that they're engaging the value of the process, but then don't want to pay what it's worth. Yeah. How did you arrive at a a fee that you feel reflects your value, or a system for 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 calculating fees that reflect your value? I mean, it's it's is it it's a sort of a subjective thing, right? But um, well, I guess in somewhat entirely subjective in that case, but uh, what's your kind of rule of thumb or? Well, it can be very precise because everyone has a different method and depending on certain clients, I mean, we're not meant, we're not meant to have a, uh, a fee, um, not meant to have the kind of fee guide, but yeah. we have to have some, we talk to other practices, of course, and work out what, you know, we talk together about what they're charging and what they think is reasonable for a certain type of project. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we do is keep really clear records of the work from project to project. And, of course, what happens is sometimes the work balloons out at certain points. And so we we address that either as an issue, an internal issue in terms of process in the practice or actually is that something in the work that needs to be addressed within the structure of the fee? Is there mm-hmm. something there with a certain question, certain client or certain project type that requires extra, um, it requires a kind of more laboured gap analysis or it requires more attention to a return brief or it needs to be set up because it's it's with the project seeking funding, therefore we need to put more ideas and value into the beginning so that it becomes really profound and something that people really want to fund. So that shapes the balance of the fee um, and small doesn't necessarily mean cheaper either. Like the scale, the, the, to condense the whole domestic um, need into a small, smaller envelope, that actually requires more effort. So that doesn't. Our fee goes up when we the scale of the work intensifies. It mm. it, it it isn't. Um, but that that's a normal thing too. Yeah. Um, but just being across those things, it's actually possible to be very precise about why the fee is structured the way it is. Um, so, and that obviously helps when we are talking with clients about what the costs of the work are. Yeah, is there anything that you guys do in your process when you're sort of bringing on a new client or starting a project that is kind of outside the norm um, in, in terms of? Um, in terms of practice or at least from your past experiences or things that you've picked up from other studios, is there anything that you've kind of come up with as a, as a step or, or, or something that you do that is kind of maybe an innovation or something that is kind of unique to your practice as far as you know? It's hard to know, Dave, but one thing that we do do is we resist drawing early. Okay. So we don't land a, we don't land a scheme in front of the client after the first meeting. Yeah, because it takes time to um, understand really what the re- what the real needs of a project are, and they can be different to what the client's articulating. So it, it is that, that restraining the, the kind of the temptation to just kind of wow a client with a drawing um, 
is something that we do uh, uh, as a as a habit. But it's not. Mm. I, I don't think there's anything in particular that we do that we don't kind of take them out to lunch and um, <laughs> we don't do any, we don't do any of that. I mean, I, I mean, we do, but only when we really mean it. And yeah, yeah. But that's interesting. There's um there's definitely a crossover um between. Well, that's actually kind of quite a common conversation in in sales and pricing strategy. Um, you know, the kind of Blair ends win without pitching kind of philosophy of you know, as a creative, you want to kind of jump in there and be creative um, straight away. But that's not necessarily that's kind of undervaluing your value as a, yeah. as a designer in a way. Um, yeah. But but you're you're doing it, you're coming at that, not drawing or resisting that urge to begin drawing too quickly from more from the perspective of, you know, the qual- the quality of when you do start to work through that design and doing that in a more methodical way. But, but, it, but it also probably benefits in terms of that client perception of what you do as well, that you're not, you're not in there sketching up a scheme during that first meeting when they've mm. walked in the door, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that and that process of um, uh, restraint uh, also bespeaks a kind of respect for the needs of the client. Uh, you know, it, it's we're not there to kind of um, fulfil some uh, deep need to just produce a drawing of a building. It it is actually about other things first, and once they're clear and we and we have entered into that with with a, with enough appreciation, then then we can start drawing. A quick question on that at the start of the process. Um, when you start exploring or identifying that project that has that narrative, I'm guessing that your initial conversations are not like the typical, say we're doing a residential project or, or any type of project. What are some of the topics that are being discussed that that start to allow you to kind of probe into that that narrative of the project? Is it waiting for that? interesting thing that the client says or, or or is it is it something that's um more of a more of a process that you've developed in, in terms of exploring those projects or what are you kind of looking for during those very initial conversations that that kind of jumps out at you sometimes when we're not sure i'm talking about more residential um uh projects houses yeah sometimes when we're not sure we'll ask the client to imagine they're living um, in the work, it's complete, and mm. that tells us thing tells us the real things. Like they'll start to talk about the light in the morning when they wake, the smell of coffee, the sounds that they're hearing, the sense of the garden, um, how they greet each other in the mornings, what happens. It it, it takes on and it it has life, and it also is an optimistic act because suddenly you see these, the kind of promise of the work. We can imagine those spaces as they're describing them and see what they're talking about. And the house can formulate around those dreams really. Hmm. Um, And that is a very, that's been a very powerful way for us because if you start on a functional brief that looks at the, what Tim Hill calls the Kaidulai kitchen dining living, <laughs> yep. the, the kaidulai of the kind of domestic reality of what we're dealing with. But it's, it, it, that, 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 um, that isn't a very kind of uh, um, engaging or open way of starting the process of making a place for people to live. So 
that's really important. I think with some of our other work, which it carries incredibly um, complex and important stories, uh, that that requires that requires questions all the time. We ask lots of questions, trying to trying to understand. I think what the aspiration um, really really is that that um, I'm I'm not really sure. I, I, I think it, I'm trying to think of a good example, but it's mm. that that process of really listening is. Um, and, and not doing that thing we were talking about before where you kind of the, the talk for talk's sake, it, it, that, that's the point at which we're just silent listening to what the, what is it, what the work really needs to be about. Yeah, interesting. And, and, the, and the client will usually, you find that they will kind of tend to reveal that in some way. Yeah, they do. Yeah. 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 It starts to kind of come out of them in a, in a really interesting way. Um, and most most often, people don't realise that that is the conversation that is more meaningful in architecture. That they they feel like that's not the thing that we need to be discussing. How they're feeling about it, or what it needs to, how it needs to hold them, or what sense it needs to offer um, to others. That 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 is that is not a normal thing, but it's actually everything. So. Um, yeah, we, Poppy and I are quite um, rigor, we're quite determined about that that dialogue have, happening in the work. Just, I think last week you posted a school project on your Instagram account, and I know mm. that your practice is a cross section of work, and you're not you're not tied into one particular type of work. But but I am interested in kind of as you sort of as you transition and become possibly known for a completely different category of work. Um, how have you found, I guess, A, how have you found it kind of working in Taylor and Hines working on a project like that with a very different type of client um, versus, uh, no, and then on top of that, I guess, what do you sort of see or as the long-term sort of vision for the practice and, and is, there, is there an idea there of kind of where, we should we should expect you guys to be in maybe five years or ten years. Is there is there is there something there? I'd love to know kind of your view of what the future looks like. I think if um, yeah, so that project for a school, a fabulous school community. Um, they're really the, the the work that we've that's starting to open. So we have lots of other projects. We've got a, a, a um, inner city housing within uh, an, an old coffin factory in the centre of Hobart. Um, uh, we've got um, some work on a film studio in Elizabeth Street in the Heritage Listed, um, mostly working within existing contexts, interestingly. Mm. Um, we are working with uh, community here on an incredibly important project for a um, commemorative project. Um, with, with the Aboriginal community, and um, and the cottage, the the, the the cottage school, and some other projects that we've developed, which are not large scale, but they're interesting civic works um, 
and they've all come together, which is an unusual, well, not so unusual, actually, unsurprising. I think if um, we have had lots of interesting dialogue with other people who, are, who have dedicated themselves to working creatively here, and that's been an interesting process. Um, there are some people who are quite keen to write about our work as a way of um, sort of sharing in it. And that's mm. been fascinating to engage with them uh, about what they see in our work. Um, and more often than not, people see themselves, which I think is a very beautiful um, situation, actually, because Poppy and I didn't ever really intend to, we, don't, we didn't tend to kind of own the work or take from the places that we're that we're working within, something should happen where they're enlivened and and magnified for others. And I think if we're still working in in a in that kind of way, uh, our, our pursuit is is really just to reveal Tasmanian sites and Tasmanian stories. That's why we don't pursue work outside mm. of the island, which means that we have to be diverse typologically. Yeah. Um, so. I'd be interested to see what happens. We'd like to get our like to get get engaged in some of the um, cultural work that we feel could be opened up more in terms of its offering to community. But um, that that is a very difficult place to engage. In, in what way, or in what makes it a difficult place to engage? I think our I think our principles. I think the integrity, the, the the principles that I we were talking about before yeah. that it's when it's when they're try there's a, a sense of you transact there's a transaction occurring and the principles can be can be owned mm. and but they can't reflect back on the work and it, inevitably our process means that the principle the principles and the integrity of the approach reflects back upon the work and yeah. that is not something that um, um, unless we're dealing with clients who believe in what they're doing and have capacity in that regard like they they understand what it is that they're trying to achieve and um, it's a very difficult process because it ends up becoming a case of us just pushing quality into the work um, without it being understood and without it being necessarily accepted um, because mm. it's uh, it's the, the value the, the proposition there is lost. So yeah, it's a that's that's a that's an that's a, that's a bit of a struggle. Well, what an interesting note to leave things on. <laughs> 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 but I think that's so. That's kind of I, I guess one of the main things that you're kind of looking backwards at what you've been doing. I think you've you've you would probably agree that you've kind of found your feet and you kind of know what you're doing with the stuff that you've been doing recently. And this is kind of like looking forward into the future. And you're thinking, how do we how do we get into this space more? Right there, mm. there are things that we 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 don't know necessarily how to do what we do in that system yet, right? There's kind of, there's still some questions there, some things that are sort of unanswered, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And that is actually for us, that's that's the most interesting um, 
part that there are that there, so long as there are questions that remain that's then there's something to pursue that's why we do what we do awesome thank you so much for coming on the podcast matt i think there'll be a lot of architects picking through your comments and um looking for those like little bits of nuggets that they can take with them and kind of go you know what i'm gonna really focus on that um but thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it thank you dave Well, that was my conversation with Matt Hines from Taylor & Hines Architects. If you'd like to learn more about Taylor & Hines, you can visit taylorandhines.com.au or follow them on Instagram at taylorandhinesarchitects. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please make sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every second week. It also helps other architects to find the show and benefit from these conversations. So, I really appreciate it when you subscribe in your podcast app. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about me, Dave Sharp, you can visit vanityprojects.com to check out my blog, join over 5,000 other architects on my email list, or learn more about my marketing coaching services for architects and book a 20-minute consultation to discuss your situation. That's all for this episode, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 